Hello, and welcome to the Hotel News Now podcast. I'm news editor Sean McCracken. 2023 was a big year here at HNN, highlighted by the launch of the Hotel News Now podcast network. This year alone saw the start of three distinct podcast feeds, with collectively over 60 episodes available for your listening pleasure. We recognize that's a lot to catch up on with just weeks left before the new year, so we took some time to pull highlights from some reader and listener favorite episodes. In November, the Hotel News Now podcast took a deep dive into what's driving continued and outsized growth across the Dallas Metroplex, with co-stars Candace Carlisle and Colin Sherman sharing why they think the market is so hot and even transitioning to be a more leisure and luxury-driven destination. Now, as, a, from, as an outsider, it was always my perspective of Dallas that it's much more of a business travel market than a leisure travel market. Am I wrong on that, or is that shifting? Is that... Is that I think, it's, I think it's shifting. Um, I, I know in the last year, which we're kind of seeing um, a little bit of shift in, in the last year, we, you know, business, business would extend uh, le- their leisure into mm-hmm. the weekend. So you'd see a lot yeah. of you'd see business travelers kind of say, oh, I'm going to stay Friday through Sunday on that mm-hmm. shoulder day. And, uh, and so it's kind of become somewhat of a leisure destination. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you go downtown and just take a look at all the, uh, all the new development, like the, uh, AT&T discovery district, it, it's, you can just see leisure written, I mean, restaurants, bars, shopping, you name it. It's, it's in that area mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it's in Dallas, I should say. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is interesting to me because we just, on the Co-Star News side, we just did this big package on San Francisco. And it seems like there's so many, like, really, really surface level similarities between the way San Francisco and Dallas are constructed as a market, other than, you know, the ability to, like, develop in them because that's completely different. But, like, you know, a lot of business driving these markets, like, but their their trajectories in the last couple of years could not be more different. So, like, what's the reason for that? Is it simply like a Texas versus California thing, or is there more dynamics at play there? I'm I'm just genuinely curious what 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 the actual difference is like because you kind of it kind of gets to like what succeeds and what doesn't right now, right? Candace, do you want to take that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, fe- I feel like, you know, if we were to have an executive with the Visitors and Bureau, the Convention and Visitors Bureau with us right now, I have a lot to say about, you know, how they've been sort of adding more um, leisure sort of fun things to the Dallas-Fort Worth lineup. But I mean, you kind of see that in just like sports teams. Like, let's talk about the Rangers who are playing in the World Series in Dallas Fort Worth tonight. I mean, there um Arlington has really sort of built up this like entertainment district where you can theoretically go and stay in Arlington. You know, you can go to neighbor like you can go see a cattle drive in like Fort Worth and you can go see, you know, uh go to a museum to the Perot Museum of Nature and Science in Dallas. I mean, there's sort of like this growing roster that sort of like evolved over the last decade and really sort of changed Dallas into I mean I don't want to call it like a boring business city but certainly it's been like I feel like it's been the business city of Texas I mean Colin wouldn't you agree I mean I don't want to like rip on Houston or Austin or anybody but you know what I mean like I feel like I feel like Dallas is sort of like the business center of the state and it's been like that for a while and now 
you have like sports teams, you have museums, you have like other things that they're trying to add to the mix in Dallas Fort Worth. I mean, we don't have oceans like San Francisco. We don't have mountains like San Francisco, but I mean, there it's 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 a, a somewhat cool place where they are making sort of these destinations, both AT&T District as well as Clyde Warren Park. And, you know, you've got the PGA up in Frisco where you can go and spend like a day and have fun. And so um, I think that, you know, there's a reason why more hotels are being added to the region. And it's not just like these limited service hotels either. I mean, we just got our first JW Marriott. Um, we have, you know, a four seasons that's in the design phase that's coming. We're told, you know, there's going to be a second Ritz Carlton in the Dallas Fort Worth region. And it just seems like the level of amenities and hospitality that's coming to the market is something that Dallas has never, Dallas Fort Worth has never really had before. And that's the thing, like all of the cities are doing this. It's not just Dallas. It's not just Fort Worth. You see this with Frisco. You see this with Arlington. You see this with Irving. And the list goes on and on where everyone wants to create this space to really bring people in and engage them. I mean, I there's convention centers up in Allen, Texas. And I don't know, Sean, I mean, I guess you kind of know where Allen is, but, you know, it's no yet another <laughs> suburb. I mean, Richardson has convention space. Like, you know what I mean? I feel like every city, don't you feel like college? <laughs> Every city has a convention center hotel and they're all competing and they're all busy and they're, and so it's just, it sort of feeds on one another and we've become more of a destination for hospitality and convention business as a result. And um, I feel like that's what sort of spurred Dallas, like the city of Dallas to like, be like, okay, we need to do something with our convention center because they don't want to be eclipsed by whatever's going on just outside their city limits. Meanwhile, on the Tell Me More podcast with co-stars Jan Freitag and STR's Isaac Colazzo, the pair, along with h and Stephanie Ricca, dissected demand dynamics in the fourth quarter and how international travel trends were skewing the demand picture for hotels. Now that we are fully into it, group, business transient, performance and demand in cities, are those the big powerhouses that are going to get us through the rest of the year? Yes, they are. They are the powerhouses. We're seeing a shift from the non-top 25 into the top 25. We're seeing pretty darn good occupancies in ADR growth, especially since September. We've seen ADR return because, yeah, summer ADR was really low. It was like 2.2% uh, for, I think, for the quarter, but it, it was low, right? So now we are getting back that pricing power, but it's also because we're getting more of the traditional business traveler back more the convention traveler. So I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. So it looks good, but caveat. Next week's going to be scary. And not oh, because it's Halloween. Right. We're recording this in late October. Next week is Halloween. Right. And everyone's already forgotten because both Jan and I have been receiving messages. Why does next week seem so, so weak? And, uh, you know, there's not much on the books. It's because it's Halloween and it falls on a Tuesday, which really negates business and group travel because every parent, both parents want to be home for their children and no meeting planner is going to plan any meetings next week because of that. So that's the part that will be the caveat. October is going to be an interest. It's been pretty good, but that's going to throw it because we're going to lose basically a week because of the holiday falling on a Tuesday 
a year ago was on a Monday had less of an impact because people did stay home Monday and then they traveled Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. This will be, again, a greater impact. Well, there is indeed a group meeting that week. The ULI Fall Conference is in LA, which starts on the 30th. I'm on the Hotel Development Council, and they moved the meeting because we were supposed to have dinner on the 31st. And I guess the organizers got a lot of emails saying, uh, that's probably not happening. So they moved it out to the 1st and the 2nd. But I'm very, very curious to see what traffic will be like on the show floor on the 31st. I'm not going to be there, but I'm just going to listen for it. Um, let's hope, Isaac, that meeting planners, yes, they're not booking that week, but let's hope they push it into this week. Of course, yeah. You know, and then maybe into the following week. Right, that makes sense. And we, we've been talking about that within my team, that this could, it could be like bookend. We could have a very strong this week and then take the off next week and then have a very strong start to November. So we'll have to wait and see. The September group data was very encouraging. We sold only 200,000 fewer group rooms than we did in September of 2019. And Isaac and I have a little side bet going. Is it possible that in October we're actually selling more group rooms than we did in 2019, having the best group months ever? So stay tuned for that. Well, that begs a question because now I'm going to say the word that I said last time we would never say again, of course, normalization. We talk mm. about normalization a lot. Oh, no, you're booing me in the Halloween spirit no, that was of this episode. Oh, that okay. was a ooh, not a boo. So let me let me ask you guys this and, and explain this for the benefit of our listeners, maybe who might be newer to the industry since pandemic times. What in a normalized U.S. hotel operating environment should we be expecting to happen in the fourth quarter as we're moving into November, December in terms of, oh, this is usually when business transient or group picks up or slows down or changes to the, what is a normal last two months of the year and how is that different or the same this year? I think you encapsulated, you really have to look at by weeks instead of months, right? So what happens is right after Labor Day, you start going toward a new peak. And the peak normally occurs just before Halloween. That's when occupancy gets back up to near 70% on a normal year. Thereafter, it's going to stay in the high 60s, but it'll begin trending down. And by the time we get to Thanksgiving, then it starts getting really close to bottoming out which it does during the week of Christmas. And then on New Year's, you'll see a bump up. This year's New Year's, just heads up, will be a good New Year's again because it's still on a weekend. New Year's Eve is on Sunday. New Year's Day is Monday. So it still provides for a three-day weekend. So that'll be good. Next year, not so good. So get ready for next year's not being great. But this year should be really good. So that's kind of how it goes. So we'll bottom out that last week of December, and then the climb will start all back into the first quarter as groups and meetings and everything starts back for the new year. And it'll be very interesting to see if there is international inbound to New York, Boston, Washington for that Christmas time period. We've had in the past, pre-pandemic, obviously a lot of inbound for shopping in December that has helped. The transient occupancy, which was not business travelers because those stayed further home and not a lot of group meetings going on. But it's going to be interesting to see if the international traveler stays home or actually comes back. And or if Americans stay home and or go overseas. Because again, That's what we saw in September it. was very a large increase in, in outbound travel. So, Which typically is peaking in summer months, right? But Correct. that season extended this year, would you say? Yes, it did. And again, maybe it had to do with fall breaks. You know, again, as, as things get 
back to normal, you know, where people are kind of now going back to regular schools, session weeks and things, maybe that's what led that peak. Again, we didn't look at it by week in terms of the actual outbound side, but we did look at the month and the month was really, really strong. Maybe it was just Instagram envy that everybody saw their neighbors in or their friends in August being in Italy and saying, oh, I missed out. Let me go as well. On the Next Gen and Lodging podcast, host Amari Head connected with Synergy Hospitality Group's Damon Smith to talk about the challenges of staffing up in 2023 and how even though it's getting better, it still isn't easy. What does it look like right now? We're t- we've been here. So previously, uh, you know, and everybody knows I'm, I'm a hospitality nerd. So if you go back, it was the war for talent. It was the war for talent. Um, and now it's a different type of war for talent. And you hear a lot of people saying, and, and I'm using air quotes, uh, it's hard to hire people. Uh, and another air quote, people don't want to work. W- what has been your experience and not just attracting, but retaining talent, A, and then B, where are you going to find this talent? You know, um, I'll start by saying and date myself a little bit and say I'm a 70s baby. So I'm old enough to remember um, Atari and uh, beta machines, but I'm young enough to still have been a part of the technology boom and transition from a cell phone, from a bag to a flip phone, to uh, a, a handheld, to a computer in your hand to what we have now with Mm -hmm. all the modern technology. So um, yes, to to, to be very frank and very um, uh, blunt about it, the industry has been presented post-pandemic with quite a few obstacles as it comes down to human capital and talent acquisition. Um, But some of the old ways, some of those analog ways is what my kids say about me. Um, Some of those analog ways are still work. Um, <clears throat> you know, I have some really good examples as we get further into the discussion, but definitely uh, we have, as Synergy, we have experienced the talent lag during the pandemic. We had a lot of our our senior leaders in this industry across the board that left and chose alternative careers. And now there is a huge gap. Also, the baby boomers left a, a, a colossal gap um in our industry and so because they stayed in their roles for so long and they had kids so late so they couldn't get out um so now we're looking at a world that um it's 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 like anything else it's almost like retail fast food quick service restaurants like mm-hmm. mcdonald's burger mm-hmm. king not to name drop but you know it's like those restaurants yeah that they're we, not paying us ad money yet no they're not paying us ad <laughs> <laughs> so so pay my brother <laughs> <laughs> But no, seriously, so kind of in that quick service restaurant model where turnover is high because the wages were so so low, now you have a wage that has risen up to better than fair market level. So it's raised fair market level up, fair market rates up. It's not that 725 or even a 325 or, you know, 325 an hour that I grew up with. You did just date yourself. I did. I did. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, you know, at least it wasn't 50 cents in a bag of hay, <laughs> some grain or something. But no, seriously. So these kids are now are able to make 15, 16 dollars, 17, 18 and up in the northeastern markets, New England markets, 19 dollars an hour starting pay. And for unskilled labor. 
So we're in a place where we have to get creative and um, we can talk about some of those things here in a second, but we, we, we do experience it from every level, from the general manager level to the, you know, to the regional level, to the, the, the executive housekeeper, housekeeper, all the way down to, um, to your entry level bellman uh, positions and dishwashers. Uh, everything, the price of tea in China, if we can still say that today, has gone up. Finally, HNN's Brian Roten brought on Fisher Phillips' Andrea Ryan to discuss the impact of the National Labor Relations Board's back-and-forth approach to joint employer status and what that means to hotel brands, owners, and operators. Yeah, I, we actually are, are referring to it as but, but a bit of a whiplash re, uh, effect, that, uh, given all the changes that have occurred in this area over the past few decades, and, and really over the past few years with the with the change in the in most recent administrations. So. For about, for more than 30 years, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board has held that two companies would only be considered joint employers, basically being equally responsible for certain labor and employment matters if they shared or co-determined matters governing the essential terms and conditions of employment and actually exercised that right to control. So terms and conditions of employment are going to be hiring, pay, benefits, discipline, performance reviews, all the ins and outs of the daily life of, of an, an individual's employment. But that law, the, the, the law at that time said you must, you must actually exercise the control over that group of employees to be considered a joint employer. So let's, let's, let's for purposes of this history, let's talk about a staffing agency and a hotel. So, um, <clears throat> So, so for 30 years, the, the hotel management would have had to actually exercise control over the staffing agency's employees for them to be held to be a joint employer. <clears throat> In 2015, the board renounced this test uh, in a very controversial case called Browning-Ferris, and it eliminated the requirement that the employer actually exercise direct control. Instead, the board said that businesses only needed to retain the contractual right to potentially control, even if it never exercised it. So um, the, the board held that even indirect control, so control through a third party, control through an intermediary, would be sufficient to find joint employment. That was a major change from over 30 years of law. And then in 2020, five years later, the NLRB, as I said, whiplashed and switched it up again, issued a rule saying an employer must possess and actually exercise substantial, direct, and immediate control over the employee's essential terms and conditions of employment. That was under the Crump Board. So, uh, that, was, so that went back to the previous standard before went back 2015. To close, close to the previous standard. Okay. Um, today's finalized rule, we're once again in a place where the standard is broad and, and unwieldy and difficult to manage because it is it is so um, amorphous. I mean, it's really for um, to be found a joint employer, businesses are going to be liable for for any kind of collective bargaining, union organizing, unfair labor practices if they have the control and don't even use it or, or have indirect control. So that poly, that that this change, this rule should go into effect December 26, 2023. 
<laughs> subject to comments which are being submitted now, including the industry. There's a lot of folks in, in the industry that are um, are submitting, you know, very very stringent comments about this. I'm sure. I'm Devon Reed. I'm Omari Head. And I'm Chris Henry. We're the hosts of the Next Gen and Lodging podcast on the Hotel News Now podcast network. It's a monthly show in which we interview a new generation of hoteliers to get their insights into a variety of disciplines and topics from finance to food and beverage and hotel operations. Listen to us on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Narration for this episode of the Hotel News Now podcast was recorded on December 14th, 2023 and edited by Sean McCracken. Go to hotelnewsnow.com for the latest industry news every day.